as a lot of you know, I moved to Utah a couple of years ago, and it's a super dry state. I do a lot of mountain biking, hiking, and skiing, and when I do those activities in this dry of a climate, it's crucial to avoid getting dehydrated, and that's where Element comes in. What a lot of people don't realize is that healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about replacing water and electrolytes, which makes sense because you lose both water and sodium when you sweat. So both need to be replaced to prevent muscle cramps, headaches, and energy dips. Unfortunately, the typical solutions on the market, Gatorade, other sports drinks, and low-quality electrolyte packs, are often loaded with sugar and a lot of artificial colors and flavors. This is why I've become a huge fan of Element. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte solution for people who want to stay hydrated but don't want to put a lot of junk in their bodies. It comes in super convenient individual packs that you just mix into your water bottle and you're good to go. No sugar or artificial junk, just electrolytes and great taste. Element was formulated by my good friend and former research biochemist Rob Wolf to provide the optimal ratios of sodium, potassium, and magnesium for health, performance, and energy. They also did a great job with the flavors. My favorites are orange salt and watermelon salt, but they have several other great flavors that are worth trying too. I've turned most of my friends and family onto Element and they love it, so I wanted to give you the chance to try it too. For a limited time, the folks at Element are offering a free Element sample pack, which comes with eight packets of Element, one of each flavor they sell. All you have to do is cover the cost of shipping, which is $5 for US customers and location dependent for international customers. Element has been an absolute game changer for me and so many people I know. I put one in my water bottle virtually every day and never exercise or do anything active without it. I hope you get as much benefit from it as I do. Just go to drinkelement.com slash Cresser. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash Cresser to claim your free Element sample pack. You only cover the cost of shipping. Again, that's drinkelement.com slash Cresser. D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash Cresser. Heal at home or on the go with Higher Dose's Infrared Therapy Line. Experience the powerful benefits of infrared with Higher Dose's portable infrared sauna blanket and feel the difference after just one session. Infrared increases blood flow for faster recovery, better sleep, and a calmer central nervous system. For those of you who want to experience the benefits of infrared without the sweat, they also have a really cool infrared PEMF mat that comes in two sizes. It combines the dual technology of infrared with PEMF for an unbelievable recharging experience. PEMF stands for Pulsed Electromagnetic Field, and it works by sending electromagnetic waves through your body at different frequencies to help promote your body's own recovery process. You'll feel relaxed, regrounded, and rebalanced. Whether you deal with chronic pain, work out frequently, or just need a moment to relax, lying on their mats even a couple minutes a day will help ease your mind and body from the inside out. Get your own infrared sauna blanket or infrared PEMF mat at higherdose.com today and use my exclusive promo code CRESSER75 at checkout to save $75. That's higherdose.com and the exclusive promo code is CRESSER75. Or just go to higherdose.com slash Chris to get your 75 off today. I have uh, one of these mats, the PEMF mat, and I love it. I use it every day. Um, actually, my whole family uses it, including my dog. And uh, it's, it's one of those few truly game-changing um, technologies that has really uh, dramatically improved my health and well-being. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I have. Hey everybody, Chris Cresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. This week, I'm excited to answer a few of your questions that you've sent in. And the first one is about natural ways to treat hyperthyroidism. So the key understanding to begin with here is that hyperthyroidism is almost always an autoimmune condition called Graves' disease. There are some exceptions, of course, but that is uh, definitely the most common cause of hyperthyroidism. And it's unfortunate that in the conventional model and in the conventional approach to treating hyperthyroidism, this is rarely acknowledged. 
The most common treatments for Graves' disease and hyperthyroidism are toxic drugs like PTU and methimazole that suppress the production of thyroid hormone or surgery to remove the thyroid gland. These may sometimes be necessary if the symptoms and signs are extreme. Uh, for example, excessive production of thyroid hormone can speed up heart rate and lead to stroke and even death as a result. So uh, if the symptoms are this severe, hyperthyroidism is definitely not something to be trifled with, and those drugs or even surgery might be necessary to address the condition if it's become that extreme. Having said that, if the condition is not as extreme or if and when it's under control with medication, it's always better to turn our attention toward addressing the underlying causes so that you can get better and stay better without unnecessary drugs or surgery. That's a, a core principle of functional medicine, of, of course. So what does that look like in the case of autoimmunity in general and then Graves' disease specifically? Well, as you probably know, I've written and spoken a lot about uh, addressing autoimmune conditions from a functional medicine perspective over the years, so I'm not going to uh, rehash all of that here. There's lots of good information on my website and podcast related to that, but I'm just going to kind of give you an overview of how we approach it, and then I'll mention some specific things that can be helpful in in the, in in the case of Graves' disease and hyperthyroidism. So with, with autoimmunity, we, we always want to address the triggers of immune dysfunction. And uh, the most common things would be diet, you know, a, a diet and processed and refined food, um, standard American type of diet. But there are also even healthy foods um, that can trigger autoimmune symptoms in certain people. So these would be things like um, nightshade, plants, uh, tomatoes, peppers, nuts and seeds can be a problem for some people, dairy products, eggs, whole grains uh, can be an issue, and legumes as well. So uh, one of the most common dietary approaches to addressing autoimmunity is called, is called the autoimmune protocol, or AIP. And this is a, a, an elimination diet that removes those foods for a period of time until the individual is, is feeling better and then you gradually add some of those foods back in to see which ones were the biggest offenders and then to try to you know expand your your diet over time other dietary approaches that can be helpful include the walls protocol uh, from dr terry walls who's suffered from uh, progressive secondary ms and was basically in a wheelchair um, and and then through her her diet, which is similar to AIP but has some differences, was able to get out of that wheelchair, um, ride a bike for 18 miles soon after that, and now she's uh, walking and doing phenomenally well today and is helping thousands of people around the world with her protocol. Uh, so that's the WALS protocol, W-A-H-L-S. And then, you know, like a, a, a standard paleo type of diet can work well for, for some people. A ketogenic diet can work well for others. So there are a lot of different options there, um, but the key diet is almost always a key in recovery. Uh, another focus would be the gut. So we know that imbalances in the gut from everything from disrupted gut microbiome to uh, undetected uh, bacterial or parasitic or fungal infections um, to intestinal permeability or leaky gut to SIBO, these can all dysregulate the immune system via several different mechanisms. So the gut is always uh, a major focus. We look at food intolerances above and beyond things that you might generally remove from your diet from you know using AIP or WALS protocol. Uh, some people may have specific intolerances that need to be diagnosed with testing or, or through elimination and provocation protocols. Sleep is a major factor. Stress management uh, is, is another important one. Getting the right kind of exercise or physical activity. You know, sometimes people with autoimmune disease overdo it. 
actually, and they do too much exercise um, for what their body can handle due to the uh, systemic chronic inflammation. Uh, and, and in other cases, of course, um, not enough, and both can contribute to problems. So we look at things holistically and try to identify and address those triggers. You know, we, we go deeper with things like heavy metal toxicity or other toxins, mold, um, and, and biotoxins that you might find in a water-damaged home, um, latent infections or, 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 or other intracellular tick-borne diseases like Lyme disease, uh, which are often underdiagnosed. So there's, lot, you know, that's, that's a, another layer down, but those uh, causes are, are quite common, actually, in people with autoimmune conditions. We look at nutrient deficiency. Um, so it's really a much more comprehensive approach than what you see in the conventional paradigm. And um, the overriding goal there is to identify and address the triggers. So once we've done that, the next step is to help balance and regulate the immune system. Sometimes addressing the triggers uh, is enough, and the immune system kind of snaps back into balance on its own after that. Other times, it's not enough. It's, a, it's, a, it's an important and necessary starting place to address the triggers, but even after those triggers are addressed, the immune system can sometimes remain out of balance. And you know, one of the probably uh, best examples of this is in the scientific literature, we've known for, for decades that viral infections are triggers of autoimmune disease. And this is, of course, relevant today with COVID, um, but it's been the case for many, many years. Um, so the scenario would be you, you get infected with a virus, and then that virus triggers immune dysfunction. Uh, your body deals with the virus, it's gone, but that immune dysfunction remains and, and manifests as autoimmune disease. So in that case, it's not so much about addressing the trigger because the trigger is no longer present. It's about uh, helping the immune system to, to rebalance uh, and deal with the impact that that trigger caused, even if that was years ago. So that's a, a pretty common scenario. Uh, and, and in fact, long COVID, uh, a lot of researchers now believe is autoimmune, or that's at least a significant mechanism. So that's exactly what's happening there. Somebody uh, gets the SARS-CoV-2 virus, that virus passes, you know, the body deals with it naturally, and it leaves the body, but then the after effects, that, that immune imbalance persist even after the virus is gone. So um, this is a scenario that kind of indicates what I'm talking about here, that, that uh, the triggers uh, are important to address, but that isn't always the, the end of the story. Uh, you may need to put attention towards balancing and regulating the immune system after those triggers are gone. So lots of um, natural treatments can help there. You know, things like glutathione, vitamin D, curcumin, probiotics, all have an immunoregulatory effect, sulforaphane. Um, then you have uh, like non-dietary or nutritional treatments like sauna or pulsed electromagnetic field therapy, um, stress management, mindfulness, uh, all of those can, can play a role. And these, all of these steps, when you put them together, addressing the triggers and balance and regulating the immune system can have pretty dramatic impacts. Um, you know, for example, I'm, I'm thinking of one of my patients with Graves' disease and hyperthyroidism. She was in her 60s when she came to see me, and she'd been on PTU, which is one of the uh, thyrotoxic drugs they use to suppress thyroid function for more than 30 years. And through a combination of the strategies that I just mentioned, she was able to get off her, her PTU medication, which was shocking to her and her endocrinologist, um, and basically manage it naturally and, and, and felt better than she had felt at any point during the 30 years of taking that medication. But again, it's really important to do that under the supervision of a clinician because hyperthyroidism can be serious um, and, and lead to serious complications, including death. So uh, please don't just stop taking a medication uh, without that supervision if, if you're taking one of those drugs. So I want to um, finish by talking about some 
a few of the botanicals that I found to be helpful for hyperthyroidism. Um, these are uh, not for autoimmunity in general. They're specific to hyperthyroidism because they have specific uh, effects on thyroid function. So the first is, is bugleweed, and this herb decreases T4 production. Um, so in some ways it acts similarly to uh, PTU methimazole, but without um, the toxic side effects. Uh, the next is prunella, which can reduce uh, thyroid nodules, nodules on the thyroid gland, which is part of the autoimmune process. Uh, another one is lemon balm, which can reduce the conversion of T4 to T3, and, and T3 is the most active form of thyroid hormone, so if you're reducing the conversion of T4 to T3, that will tend to slow things down a little bit. Uh, motherwort can reduce tachycardia or the sped up heart rate that, that a lot of patients with uncontrolled hyperthyroidism have. And uh, there's a good formula by a company called Herb Farm. That's P-H-A-R-M, Herb Farm. Uh, they're one of my favorite botanical companies, really high quality extracts. And they have a product called Herb Farm Thyroid Calming Extract, which contains uh, some of the ones I just mentioned, bugleweed, motherwort, lemon balm, and cactus. So I, I really like this blend, and um, I've seen it help a lot of, uh, of my patients. All right, so let's move on to the next question. This is about best ways to reduce psoriasis. So um, similarly to hyperthyroidism we just talked about, psoriasis is an autoimmune condition, and again, most most of the time, if you go to your conventional doctor with this complaint, you know, for uh, psoriasis, they won't tell you that it's an autoimmune disease or give you any guidance on, you know, what to do about that. And and again, that's that's not an indictment of individual doctors, um, because I think most individual, most doctors are, are doing the best they can with the training they've had in a really uh, broken system. And, you know, in a 10 to 12 minute appointment, there's just not enough time to cover all of these things. Uh, <laughs> you know, I just went through all of the things that we would look at in a functional medicine model um, addressing autoimmunity. And as, as you can imagine, that's time consuming. It, 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 there's a lot to do there. So um, in some ways, it's understandable that that doesn't happen in an in a appointment with an endocrinologist. Um, or a dermatologist that, that, that lasts for 15 minutes. So, so it's a systemic problem, uh, and it's one that I've, of course, written and, and spoken a lot about. My, my last book on conventional medicine addressed this at length, if you're interested. Um, but back to psoriasis. So it is autoimmune, so you can basically kind of repeat all of the things that I mentioned uh, just now with hyperthyroidism, looking at all of the triggers like diet and gut health and food intolerances and sleep and stress management and exercise, you know, environmental toxins, uh, undiagnosed infections, those, those can all be at play with psoriasis as well. But in terms of specific things to consider uh, for psoriasis, there are a few that I've found to be really important parts of treatment for most patients over the years. Uh, one I, I already alluded to, which was uh, probiotics. So but with psoriasis, there are different types of probiotics. So one is just kind of an internal probiotic, like that you swallow capsule for, for your gut microbiome. And my favorite option here is seed. Um, this is actually a symbiotic that combines probiotics and prebiotics. And it's, um, I think, probably the most evidence-based, one of the most evidence-based products on the market. It has um, multiple different um, scientifically validated strains and a unique delivery system that helps it actually survive the stomach acid, which most products don't, and get to the colon where it's needed. So if, if you want to check that out, go to cresser.co slash seed. Um, but with, with psoriasis, there are actually probiotic products that you can put directly on the, your skin in the affected area. And this is often a game changer for people with this condition. So one is called Glad Skin. This is a cream. It came out of Europe. It was used in Europe for many years, and now it's available in the U.S. And it actually restores the balance of the skin microbiome. So we have a, a microbiome in our gut, which most people have heard of. We also have one in the skin. 
And a lot of research actually indicates that skin conditions like psoriasis and eczema can be due to a compromised uh, skin barrier. So we, we might call it even leaky skin uh, instead of leaky gut. And just like uh, probiotics can be helpful in healing leaky gut, probiotics directly applied to the skin can be helpful in healing leaky skin. So Glad Skin uh, is, is, is a great product for that. They have different formulas, one that's more uh, relevant for uh, acne, rosacea kind of phenotype, and another that's more relevant for eczema. And, I, and I've seen better results for psoriasis patients with the eczema formula, but you could try both. Uh, another consideration with psoriasis and, and, and many skin conditions, and this, this is relevant to what I was just talking about with the skin microbiome, is a lot of the bacteria that live on and in our skin are ammonia-loving bacteria. And ammonia, we produce ammonia naturally when we sweat. And one of the downsides of um, our modern hygiene where we're using uh, soaps you know, every day, taking a shower and, and scrubbing our, our skin with soap, is that soap actually washes away that ammonia and it disrupts our natural skin microbiome. So there is a company called Mother Dirt or a product called Mother Dirt that you can use it's a spray and it adds back that natural ammonia loving bacteria to our skin. And uh, you know the idea there is similar to Glad Skin is that it will restore the balance of the skin microbiome. But that's only part of the equation. If, if you're using soap every day that washes away um, the the ammonia and and then alters the skin microbiome then putting the using the spray to add it back is is helpful but it would be better not to challenge the microbiome that way all the time so you know some people you may have seen this or heard about it some people have 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 addressed that by just not using soap anymore and it's that sounds might sound disgusting uh to some listeners but it's kind of amazing. I've done that experiment myself, and you might think that you start smelling really, really bad. But and there sometimes is a period that you have to get through uh, where that happens. But what happens for most people over time is is that there uh, once the skin microbiome um, reestablishes itself, then that's what takes care of the body odors, and the body odors are are not. Um, as significant, really, for, for many people. So, you know, that's one option. But another option is to use cleansers that don't have the same impact on the skin microbiome. So um, Mother Dirt also uh, produces some of those cleansers. So this is different than spraying the microbes back onto your skin. This is using cleansing, personal, you know, cleansing products that don't wash away that microbiome. So... It's kind of a two-part approach, and um, that can, I've seen that together with Glad Skin or, or even separately be a huge game-changer for people with psoriasis. Another consideration is phototherapy. So photo meaning light here. So this is light therapy, um, ultraviolet light, um, which you would get from being exposed to sunlight, for example, um, can really improve psoriasis for a lot of, a lot of people. And not, other options here would be like uh, infrared light. So like a near-infrared light in a near-infrared sauna or a device like Juve um, that gives you exposure to different wavelengths of, of, of uh, infrared light can be really helpful. And there are even some specific phototherapy devices that are available in some doctor's offices and, and some other places that are designed for skin conditions like psoriasis and eczema. They're, they're a little more difficult to, to come by, but that's worth considering as well. You know, if you live in a place where it's sunny and you have access to uh, sunlight most of the year, that's going to be a great option uh, because not only do you get the benefits of ultraviolet light for your skin, you get all of the other benefits for for going outside. The same is true for near-infrared sauna. There's lots of other benefits of sauna above, above and beyond um, just the, the impact that it will have on skin. So that's, that's something to uh, add to your routine for sure. Then 
there are many different nutrients that are uh, have a specific impact on the health of our skin. And several years ago, I actually put together a free ebook on this topic because um, there's a lot to know, and you know we cover all of the nutrients and how to get them in food. So if you're interested in that, go to chriscresser.com/skin-health. So that's chriscresser.com/skin-health. Um, and check that out because it, um, you know, those nutrients can make a, an enormous difference in skin health. And then the last thing is is to consider is detoxification. So the skin is the largest organ system in the body. It's the largest largest organ in the body. And if we have problems with toxic burden, this they almost always will manifest in the skin. And so, again, I've written a lot, talked a lot about detox over the years. So it, I'm not going to rehash it all here, but things like anti-inflammatory diet, uh, regular exercise, sauna, which I just mentioned, uh, a lot of the nutrients that are for skin health also support detoxification, um, you know, removing toxic cleaning products like home cleaning products and personal care products um, and replacing them with better alternatives, and then uh, supplements like glutathione, Curcumin, sulforaphane can all be really helpful. Sulforaphane, in particular, I, th- I think is the the most powerful nutrient for detoxification that I've come across, and there there you know th- literally thousands of studies uh, supporting sulforaphane's role in removing toxins ranging from glyphosate to air you know uh, particulate matter air pollution. So. Uh, if you want to check that out and learn more about it, go to cresser.co slash broccolite, B-R-O-C-E-L-I-T-E. That's really the only sulforaphane supplement that I can recommend on the market at this point, and there are a lot of reasons for that that I explain on that page, but check that out to learn more. Okay, so hope that was helpful uh, on psoriasis. And then the, the last topic, uh, actually, there's two more questions. So the next one is uh, about burnout. Um, so many people are struggling with burnout right now. COVID has really accelerated that, I think. And this is a question we've gotten a lot uh, over the, the, the past few months. So I wanted to address it here. Uh, the psychologist Herbert uh, Frudenberger first coined the term burnout back in the 1970s to describe the uh, stress and emotional depletion he saw people experiencing in helping professions in particular, such as medicine. Um, But of course, you know, burnout is not limited to medical professionals. It can affect anyone in any profession and even people who are not working in the, in the, you know, traditional sense. A Gallup survey that was done before COVID found that about two thirds of full-time workers experience occupational burnout. So I, I wonder what that number is now post COVID. It's got to be, you know, it's probably 75, 80% or up. Uh, in this survey, there were about 7,500 employees a- across a variety of, of fields and 23% reported feeling burned out at work very often or always while an additional 44% reported feeling burned out occasionally. And they cited things like unmanageable workload, unreasonable deadlines, lack of clear communication and support from their managers. And then if you add to that the fact that in this day and age, we're expected often to work away from the office almost 24-7 via, you know, our, our phones and, and laptops and tablets uh, and the fact that so much of work has now moved uh, to online and virtual in, in COVID, it's not hard to see why this burnout pheno- uh, phenomenon has become such a big issue. So um, Freudenberger defined three key characteristics of burnout. Uh, number one, overwhelming exhaustion. Number two, feelings of cynicism along with frustration and anger that lead to detachment from your job. And number three, a sense of ineffectiveness or failure. And uh, further research that's been done since that time has noted that burnout can lead to ruined personal relationships, anxiety and depression, and, and, and substance abuse. It's found to be a significant predictor of type 2 diabetes, high cholesterol, coronary heart disease, gastrointestinal issues, 
respiratory problems and even a predictor of death in those under the age of 45. So this is no joke. Burnout is, is a, a real thing and it causes real and sometimes very serious consequences. Um, some more recent research has found that burnout can literally be overwhelming for our minds, too much for our minds to handle, and it causes neuroplastic changes that make it hard for us to cope with stressful scenarios and then can eventually even lead to, to structural changes in brain anatomy and cognition. So again, this is real. It produces measurable changes in the brain and nervous system. Uh, and it's something that I, if, if it's present, we want to do everything we can to address it. But how do we do that? Well, if we go back to the three key characteristics that Freudenberger defined, we can work backwards from those to address them. So the first one was overwhelming exhaustion. So, of course, getting more sleep, making more time for rest, doing things that recharge your batteries, incorporating more play, pleasure, and fun into your life, spending time in nature, and spending more time with, with loved ones, friends, family, people that you can confide in and that, that, that you feel connected with. Um, those are all strategies that can help with exhaustion. Now, of course, the <laughs> it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing for, for many people because if you're feeling burned out, there are often real co you know reasons for that, like too much time at work or too much time in front of a screen, and it makes it harder to do some of these things that I just mentioned. And I know from my own experience of dealing with burnout at various times in my life that um, even small changes can make a huge difference. I think we often tend to get stuck in the, the mentality that we have to make these broad sweeping changes, like totally rearrange everything about our life and quit our job and all of that um, in order to make progress. And, and I just, I, that, that hasn't been my experience. Um, even adding, for example, getting to bed, you know, a half hour earlier or making 10 minutes, uh, setting aside 10 minutes in the morning to, for, for meditation or mindfulness practice or, um, spending, you know, 15 minutes playing with your kids in a very, you know, focused way where you're not distracted by a screen or with your pets or something like that, or taking a walk, um, you know, for a half hour after work in a, in a park or going outside in the morning with your coffee and sitting in the sun and just, you know, feeling the sun on your skin. It, it's a series of these kinds of small changes that often make the biggest difference rather than huge um, you know, dramatic changes. So that's, that's something to keep in mind. And you can just kind of start putting together a little program for yourself with all of the things that I just mentioned and start really small, you know, even smaller than you think you should. That's one of the key core uh, principles in, in health coaching is shrink, shrinking the change. So commit to something very small. And then when you're successful with that, that you'll gain confidence and that will help you build momentum and make uh, more changes. So that's the first step, um, addressing the overwhelm and exhaustion. The second characteristic of burnout uh, was feelings of cynicism, frustration, and anger. So uh, options for addressing this would, would include things like gratitude journaling. Um, th this can help you focus on the things that you're thankful for, and that will definitely change your mental state. There's there's actually a lot of research on the beneficial impacts of gratitude practice. Um, you, you might think that this is sort of like a, a soft thing uh, or, or anecdotal, but there, if you look in and go on PubMed and you look in the peer review literature, you'll find a lot of research supporting uh, pretty dramatic changes from gratitude journaling. And that's because, uh, as, as one of my teachers used to say, uh, Sherry Huber, one of my Zen teachers used to say, the quality of our experience is determined by the focus of our attention. So if we're always putting our attention on what's wrong and what's not working and, and, and um, negative things in our life, then that's going to define the quality of our experience. But if we shift our attention to the things that we're grateful for and appreciative of, then that has a positive impact on the quality of our experience. And and, you know, this is common sense, but it's also supported by a ton of research. So similarly, I'm a big fan of positive psychology. This it was, a, you know, a pretty big shift in, in, the, in the world of psychology that's happened over the past few decades, where instead of just putting our attention on what's broken and not working, we shift it towards what 
is working. And, you know, for the same reasons that I just mentioned with gratitude journaling, this can really change the quality of our experience in, in positive ways. Along those lines, one of the acronyms that we often use in, in health coaching to talk about how to do this is uh, HERO, H-E-R-O. So H stands for hope here. Uh, efficacy, e is for efficacy, R is for resilience, and O is for optimism. And when you put all these things together and focus your efforts here, it, it builds what, what psychologists call uh, psychological capital or PSYCAP. So one easy way to think about this is, is a bank account analogy. So it, it, we know that if, if, you're constantly, if we're constantly making withdrawals on the bank account and we're not putting anything in there, we're not doing enough deposits, then that's, um, <laughs> that's not going to go well, right? And so it's the same with our mental health. If we are um, making deposits uh, in the form of things that give us hope, building efficacy, cultivating more resilience, uh, doing things like gratitude journaling and using uh, positive psychology to, to build optimism, that will shore up our bank account. Those are all deposits into the bank account. And then when we have the inevitable withdrawals that come in the form of all of life's challenges and stresses that we can't avoid, um, we'll still be in the black, <laughs> to use that financial analogy. We'll, we'll still have um, we'll, we'll still have that psychological capital and we'll still we'll be able to bounce back from from all of those challenges and stresses of life so for gratitude journaling you really don't need much you just pen and paper but there are many different apps now uh, ios and android apps which make it even easier because they can remind you every morning or at whatever time of day that you want to be reminded to do it and then you can have a kind of running record of it and there's some some other tools that add to the experience as well so if you just go on the app store and, and search for gratitude journal you'll find a bunch of really great options and some of those apps have, have been used in studies on gratitude journaling so that's a really good way to do it and then of course you know working with a, a health coach can be extremely helpful in shifting your mindset and you can go to cresserinstitute.com and uh, click on the directory link and and search for a health coach that we've trained um, and that's really what coaching is all about helping people to to develop these types of skills and capacities which really help you know ultimately lead to a much higher quality of life and and help people to be the, the healthiest version of themselves that they can be so the third characteristic of burnout is a sense of ineffectiveness or failure. So this uh, refers to the E in hero that I just mentioned, um, efficacy. So we all want to feel like we're effective in our lives, both our personal lives and our professional lives, and taking steps to increase our efficacy, whether through learning, education, or retraining can be really helpful. It's, it's, uh, it's true that part of what is difficult about this during COVID is that there are things, a lot of things happening that are outside of our control. And that's one of the most stressful experiences for human beings to have. When we, when we are under threat of some kind, but we are not able to mount an effective response against that threat, that is a, a uniquely stressful experience for, for all animals, including human beings, to have. And so I think this is one of the reasons why stress and burnout are off the charts during COVID is because there's this big threat that we've been living with, and not just with the virus itself, but with all of the, the responses to the virus and how that's impacted our lives economically and socially and politically. You know, those are big kind of threats that we don't necessarily have an effective response to. So I just want to acknowledge that and, and you know uh, that that's probably probably in, in my mind one of the one of the biggest reasons that burnout has become such an issue um, in this day and age and having said that there are steps that we can take even in that situation where we have these large looming threats um, that that will help us to cultivate more efficacy uh, for example if we're under a threat of losing our job we can learn a new skill or, or go back to school or retrain to do something new 
And that's one way of building efficacy uh, and, and that can help us uh, to, to recover from this kind of stressful situation. That's, a, I think, a good place to start for, for burnout. Um, there's a lot more to it, but I, I, those are the things that come to mind for me. And just a couple of um, additional thoughts on COVID and, and then specific steps that we can take. I think it's really, really important in a time where there is this much stress and and we're experiencing all of these threats to remember to continue to live our lives, to celebrate, to play, to have fun, uh, to connect with people we love. And going back to the Sherry Huber quote that I shared, the quality of our experience is determined by the focus of our attention. If we're if throughout every day we're just seeing one news headline after another about how bad things are and what's going on with COVID and what's happening with the economy and what's all of the political and social divisions, um, we're getting these notifications on our phone. Uh, we're going to be pretty miserable because that's what we're attending to all day long, every day, and that's going to shape the quality of our experience. And so. I think it's really, really important to be able to unplug from that, you know, disconnect from that endless news cycle of, of negativity. Um, I guarantee you that you will, st you know, if you set aside a half hour a day or even 15 minutes to catch up with the news and headlines, that that will be enough to keep you informed and, and enable you to respond in appropriate ways and, and, and be an informed citizen. We really don't tend to need much more than that. Um, in my experience, to, to fulfill that, that duty, that social duty, and also just, um, you know, maybe that personal need to kind of stay, stay aware of what's going on so we can protect ourselves and our family. Um, but, but, you know, hours a day or, or just being notified every time a new story is published does not add to that, in my experience, and, and, it, and it significantly negatively affects our, our mental health because of um, these principles that we've just been talking about. So I think it's really important to control our access to information, especially the kind of information that's going to impact our experience in this way. Um, mindfulness, meditation, or prayer, depending on your persuasion, can all help us to accept the things that we don't have full control over and also to work to change the things that, that we do have some influence and control over. And um, just uh, to, to cultivate more awareness of our own thoughts and feelings and sensations of our reactions. And um, I think that these capacities are, or, or practices are really crucial to, to focus on at all times, but especially during uh, times of crisis and, and a lot of stress. Likewise, I think it's really important to learn how to turn off at the end of a day um, so if you're working, we now are in this place, as I mentioned earlier, where it's possible for us to work 24-7. You know, people, uh, are you know, we can respond to emails at 9 p.m. or 2 a.m. People are bringing, you know, a lot of people, I can't remember the percentage, but a very high percentage of people bring their phone into their bedroom and respond to emails and texts at night. Um a lot of people, you know, will have personal and, and work emails coming into the same inbox. And so anytime they, you know, they might check their email on the weekend and they see a disturbing <laughs> message from their boss and it just, you know, throws them right back into kind of work mindset. Uh, I've talked a lot about this over the years. It's, I think it's really, really important to establish healthy boundaries. And, you know, one of the ways you know, I, d I did a podcast with Cal Newport um, on, on a lot of these topics recently. So check that out if you, if you missed it. But one thing that he and I both do at the end of a day is we, we kind of have a ritual for shutting down. So um, I think he, he even has a phrase like shutting down or I don't remember, the, that's not it, but I don't remember the exact one. It's kind of a ritual phrase that he uses where he closes his computer and says that phrase and then he's done for the night. You know, no, no going back to open the computer and check email, no checking you know, work email on the phone, um, just shutting it all down and going to spend time with family or, you know, go out for a walk or a run or a bike ride and, you know, cook dinner, do whatever it is that you're going to do, but just really create that solid boundary uh, between work and personal life. I think that's really important. 
uh, along the same lines, I've had a, a ritual for many years of having uh, one screen-free and work-free day a week. For, for me, it's typically on Sundays. Our whole family does it. Um, and I find that to be incredibly restorative and, and don't know how I could <laughs> go on without it, frankly. It's, it's such um, an important part of my life. And if that sounds um, just like too much for you to begin with, then try a half day or even try a couple hours. And I think what you'll find, uh, if you're like most people I've, I've recommended this to, that you'll want more and more of it <laughs> uh, and, and it'll be becomes easier and easier over time and, and harder and harder to, 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 to re-enter the sort of hectic typical day after a day like that. Uh, I also do longer periods of you know, digital detoxes or, or periods where I'm not working and I'm not in front of a screen. I try to do them, you know, three or four days of that quarterly and, some, and often a longer trip, you know, seven to 10 days uh, once a year where, where I'm doing that. And it, again, makes a huge difference on everything from my mental and physical health to my creativity, uh, innovation, my, my experience of, of life and my mood. Um, it's a game changer. So... Lastly, uh, don't forget to reach out to friends and family and schedule time to be together. Um, it's really critical. We've, we, we know now from a lot of research over the past few decades that loneliness and not having a confidant in your life is a bigger risk factor for early death than things like having a high body mass index and even smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Just take that in for a second. Loneliness is a bigger risk factor for early death than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Um, but it, you rarely hear it talked about. So I think it's, it's, it's critical for us to reach out to our friends and family for support, especially during this time. So that's burnout. Uh, actually, uh, we are going to be doing a workshop or a releasing a course on uh, that I created a few years ago. Um, actually created it for... Our practitioner training program because we we found that so, so many of the practitioners who were training were suffering from burnout and we wanted to help them address that uh, to be able to be successful in the training program that was back in 2016 and then we incorporated it in the health coach training program and also everyone in my company goes through that course when when we onboard them as new employees so it's been enormously popular in those audiences and we've never actually offered it um, to our broader population, but given what's going on right now, we're, we're going to do that uh, very shortly. Maybe even might already be happening by the time this podcast comes out. So if you go to um, chriscrasser.com and sign up for my email list, you can be notified about that and we'll update you on the podcast as well. Okay, so the last question uh, is, is a really good one and um, I certainly can't do it justice, but I want to address it briefly. And the question is, why are we so polarized? And this polarization, we can see it in so many different areas now of our discourse. Uh, we see it in science, clearly. Uh, we see it in our, in our uh, social discourse. Um, we see it in politics. And, you know, it's, to, to some extent, it's not new. Uh, tribalism is part of our evolutionary heritage for better and for worse. It's always been present. Humans have always been tribal in our associations and affiliations. But I think it gets much worse, that tribalism, when it's under stress. And it really impacts the way that um, people tend to process things and respond to, uh, to things like COVID. And, and we choose a side, we identify with that side or with that tribe, and then all of our kind of responses and reactions tend to be filtered through that uh, identification. And that leads to an inability to have um, nuanced and open-minded conversations and dialogues about some of the issues that we're facing, which is really kind of a dire situation to be in, I think. I think this is one of the biggest existential threats that we face. If you saw The Social Dilemma, which is a film by Tristan Harris about how social media has effect, ha, has contributed to polarization. He says very clearly in the film that um, one of the biggest threats we face uh, as, as human beings right now is that a lack of shared reality. So this is what he meant here, here is that now 
because of social media and because of the algorithms that have driven this kind of polarization, you have a situation where different people are seeing different information and, you know, they don't, they're not operating from the same facts and assumptions. So they have a, an, a, an entirely different shared reality. And uh, Tristan argues that having a shared reality is, is actually a requirement for being able to make progress and to have real conversations and make progress on uh, everything from social to scientific to political issues. And I really agree with him there. And I think that that's one of the um, things that we're suffering from most. And uh, as I'm sure all, many of you know now, these, these algorithms were created by social media companies like Facebook to maximize uh, advertising revenue. So these were machine learning algorithms. They weren't even, you know, and, and what that means is that humans that, cre that, that created them don't even fully understand how they worked. The, the algorithms were just given basically the instruction to, to maximize clicks which in turn maximizes advertising revenue. And what the algorithms seem to figure out is that the more uh, polarized the content was that they presented to users, the more clicks that content would get. And thus the more time the user would spend on the platform and the more advertising dollars that um, Facebook would make. And so I think that these social media algorithms have played a, a very direct role in this polarization because they took people, you know, they, they would um, gradually make people uh, more and more polarized in their views by showing them more and more polarized content. So you, you, you might have had, if you took someone who was maybe moderate Republican initially and showed that person more and more polarized content that would push them further and further out uh, on, onto the periphery of, of their political persuasion party. And then the same thing would happen with a moderate Democrat or you know someone who identifies as being a progressive, then you'd show them more and more polarized content that would push them further and further out on the periphery. This is all documented. This isn't speculation. This is all documented. It's, it's um, detailed. Uh, in The Social Dilemma and, and many other sources. And I also did a podcast with Tim Kendall, who was, uh, who was involved in a lot of this in a lot of different tech companies in the Silicon Valley. And we talked at length about um, this. This was, this was done to some extent by design. Um, you know, I think maybe not initially. Initially, the, the developers didn't really understand the impact it would have, but they did come to understand it and they didn't stop it. And... Um, it's, I think, really kind of wrecked our social discourse. And we have to find a way to create new business models for these platforms and social media that don't, that aren't driven by ad revenue, because as long as they are, then we're going to keep seeing these algorithms doing their profit maximizing thing and, and pushing people uh, further and further into the, this state of polarization. So I think that's one big reason for why we're so polarized. Another interesting way of looking at it um, is crowd or mass formation theory, which wasn't developed by uh, a, a, a Belgian um, professor, Dr. Matthias Desmat. He's been kind of the modern proponent of it. I, um, it comes out of someone else's work back in the early 20th century, whose name I'm unfortunately forgetting. But the, the basic theory is... Uh, meant to explain how large groups of people can enter a kind of collective trance. Um, and, and this can manifest in different ways that it, it can manifest in polarization, as we're seeing. It can also lead to totalitarianism and fascism. Uh, it was used to kind of explain uh, some of the stuff that happened back in World War II era. Um, and, you know, can lead to human beings seeing other human beings as, as less than human and, and you know, some of the more the deeper and, and more dramatic um, social and, and cultural divisions that we've seen in human history. So in order for this mass or crowd formation to happen, four conditions have to be present. The first is so social isolation and lack of meaningful social bonds. And I think we're, we're definitely experiencing that today. There's no question about it. Loneliness has become rampant. As I mentioned earlier, there's lots of research on this. 
There are a lot of, of people who don't even have a single confidant. A confidant is, of course, someone you can confide in. Um, and in-person interaction has become even more rare or uh, than it than it you know with social media and and the amount of time that we're spending online especially with covid and zoom and people working from home that in-person interaction has become more rare the second condition is a lack of sense making or being able to make sense of what's happening in a cohesive and internally consistent way and i think that this um, has been, again, harmed by the po polarization of our social discourse and, and the social media algorithms have decreased people's ability to make sense of what's happening in that cohesive and consistent way. The third condition is uh, what Dr. Desmet refers to as free-floating anxiety. So this is like a background anxiety that doesn't really have a specific cause. And because of that, it's difficult to respond to. And as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's really one of the worst kinds of stress for humans to have this kind of vague threat looming uh, in the background that we can't mount an effective response to. And then the last condition is a lack of meaning or purpose. And I think today we're in a situation where we a lot of people are working in jobs that are, are not meaningful to them, that don't um, have any, any value in their lives and they don't feel like they're making a difference they don't feel like they're contributing in any significant way uh, and they don't have maybe a sense of purpose outside of their work either and when you put all those together you get a situation where people you know where, where people um, can form into these groups and these groups can um, get increasingly polarized can really uh, stop being kind of in touch with with a shared reality or with facts um, can start to to villainize and and see other humans as as less than human, and can even lead to um, movements like totalitarianism and and fascism. So that sounds a little bit dark, and um, it is. Uh, I think we're we're in a really challenging place right now in our in our history, um, as you know, in, here in the U.S., but also around the world in both the developed and developing world. And um, you know, when the when the COVID pandemic started, my hope was that it would it would we would rally together and it would, it would uh, bring us together in a in a response to a common threat, which certainly has happened uh, at various times. Like you know, during World War II in the U.S., there was a great sense of social co cohesion against a common enemy. You know, whether that you know, I'm not suggesting that um, that was a highlight. Um, and, and, you know, going to war is, is a terrible way to resolve conflicts. And at least, you know, within countries, there was a, a great sense of unity that came out of that. And that's not happening uh, in the U.S. It's not happening in, in many countries. It's not happening globally. And, and in fact, these challenges, I think in part because of everything that we've discussed, the, the tribal, the social media algorithms and the lack of shared reality have, have pushed us further apart. So... My hope is that you know the, the growing awareness of this, um, which which I do think is is happening, um, will lead us to some solutions that can bring us together again as a as a species and as in our local communities and in our you know in our states and countries and as a as a global community because we if we've learned one thing with COVID and coronavirus is that uh, it doesn't really know about any any borders um, we are for better or for worse we're we're globally connected now and we, um, this is something that we're going to have to work out in order to be able to move forward and address the other challenges and problems that we're facing um, as human beings so that's it for today hope you enjoyed the episode uh, Please keep sending in your questions to chriscresser.com slash podcast question, and I'll see you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. 
I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.